Welcome to another episode of The Inside Look. I'm here with Lucas Muller, as usual. He's our man on the spot, I guess, as it were. Uh, he interviewed Meg Van Dyke from Real Salt Lake today. I don't know if the interview was today. I don't know what day it was. But he's here to tell us a little more about it. Uh, before we get to him, though, Meg Van Dyke is a communications manager at Real Salt Lake. And uh, Lucas, what did you guys talk about? Uh Meg is someone I've wanted to have on for a long time. Uh, she is uh, super unique in that she originally came on to be a part of the Royal staff, having worked for Orlando Pride and what was then Sky Blue um, before they rebranded. So she has a pretty deep experience uh, in the NWSL. And so I wanted to hear about that. But also these days she's involved with both the first team uh, as well as the Academy and the, the Monarch. So she, in a really interesting way, touches all these different parts uh, of the playing organization. So her perspective on an RSL as a whole is really fascinating to hear. Great. Well, I'm sure everyone's going to really enjoy this interview. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet. I just got the file. So I'm going to have to listen to it too. Uh, but you know what? Let's, uh, let's just roll the tape. Okay. It's actually recording this time. I can see the bars going. Um, Hello, everyone. Lucas Muller here. I am at Rio Tinto Stadium today. Uh, I am with Meg Van Dyke. Meg is one of the communications managers here at Real Salt Lake. Um, Meg, thanks so much for joining me. And how are you today? I'm doing really fantastic. Thanks for thanks for letting me join you. Yeah, uh, super stoked to actually get this uh, recorded. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, I feel like it's been a couple of years in the works. It has been. Uh, thank you for being patient <laughs> with my chaotic schedule. Um, but yeah, I feel like you are one of the, the, the pillars of the PR comms department. Uh, a lot of fans don't know you, but can you just tell me a little bit about your role and sort of how you got into the sport? Yeah, uh, so I serve as a communications manager, and I kind of joke that I've got my hand in a lot of, you know, theoretical cookie jars, right? Um, and I am probably one of the few people in this organization that sees every single game that goes on. Um, so I'm, I'm the secondary for the first team um, behind Trey Fitzgerald, who, who runs more of the day-to-day, and then I handle all of the higher level with the Monarchs in the academy. So I go and attend and watch every single game, whether it's RSL, Real Monarchs, or um, currently the RSL Academy, U15s and U17s. So that's four teams and overseeing and, and having knowledge of almost 100 players. Um, so got a lot of names floating in my head and a lot of random information but so that's what that's what I currently do um when I was first hired here it was leading the day-to-day for the Utah Royals um you know obviously unfortunately they're not currently with the organization but I was with them for about two years so great and so yeah uh I know you have quite a you're quite seasoned in the industry for someone your age like what What's your history like working in professional sports? It's actually really kind of this roller coaster and roundabout um, way of how I ended up in Utah. My first kind of, you know, step into any kind of sports writing, I, when I first started college, Orlando City had recently announced that they were joining, they were bringing the Orlando Pride into their organization as an NWSL expansion team. And I actually reached out and I became the beat reporter for an SB Nation blog known as The Mainland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I spent about a year, I believe, 
covering them from that perspective. And, you know, eventually the time fizzled out and, and I wasn't really doing anything in sports for maybe a semester or two other than working for my school's newspaper. Um, and then I was actually, I was a junior in college and I was really bored and it was finals week and I was miserable and I really just didn't want to be at school anymore. Um, and so I was, I was looking up internships and, and jobs and stumbled across an internship with Orlando City as a communications intern. And to be completely honest, I was studying print journalism. I had no idea what comms were. Mm. Um, I wanted to, the mainland for me was really just a hobby. I thought, well, I'm going to go into political journalism. I wanted to do the hard hitting stuff. Um, I was the news editor for my newspaper. Like that was my sole focus and ended up applying for this internship. I interviewed and got hired within two days. And then I moved home to Orlando and I spent what was supposed to be a semester and was there almost a year. Mm. And then, uh, then after that, I went back to, to finish my education and in, in Alabama and helped kind of start the communications department as a, as an associate with Birmingham Legion as they were joining the USL championship. And while I was doing that and, and my graduation time was, was coming up, I was really intrigued and wanted to get back into women's soccer. So how long were you, uh, uh, with Birmingham? Only a couple months. It was very, very short. It was, I think it was literally just the fall. Okay. Um, and then I ended up taking a job in New Jersey with the, what was Sky Blue FC, now Gotham. Um, and I was there for about four months before, uh, we decided that it was probably best to, to part ways. And a week later I flew out here and interviewed with, with the staff and, and moved completely cross country to a state I had only ever like flown through <laughs> and, and joined the, the Royals. the flyover state label. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it had never really crossed my mind that Utah was a state that I wanted to live in. Mm. Um, you know, and now I've been here almost four years and I have turned down job offers because I love this place. And, mm. you know, for me, this is kind of what I consider home now. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, that's crazy it's been four years because sometimes yeah. I feel like you are a new member of staff, which I don't know, like, why I think that. Um, I guess yeah. the COVID thing, like, expedites a lot of things. It, yeah, it takes, like, two years out of seeing anyone. Yes. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so what – I mean, I guess I'm, – I'm curious, like, with your role now, like, what is your – you mentioned overseeing four teams. and mm-hmm. Like, what is your day-to-day like? And also, how many – how many soccer games are you watching? Four full games a week. So let's take let's take this past week for example. Mm-hmm. Um, our academy was playing in Dallas in the MLS Next Cup. So if you back it up to that home game on Saturday, I worked that whole home game against Columbus. Then, well, even back before that, I worked the Liga MX game, worked the Columbus game, worked the Monarchs away game that weekend as well. Then U.S. Soccer came into town, and I helped them on Monday and Tuesday. Worked that game Tuesday night, got on a plane Wednesday morning, flew to Dallas. Worked the U15s game on Thursday evening. They obviously won. That was the semifinal that they won. Then kind of just watched, just so that I knew what was going on. I had people actually work in the game itself. The Monarchs came on Friday. 
then worked the academy game on Saturday, flew home Sunday morning, got home and worked the RSL away game, writing the recap and doing all of the post-game media responsibilities. So... So like a chill that, week. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, like really, really chill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've got two games this weekend, and I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would assume that's probably a little bit busier than normal. Yes, uh, that's that's definitely, you know, we call it the dog days of summer, but this yeah. it gets really kind of congested, and there's a lot. But that's, I thrive in those environments. I love watching the games, just sitting on the sidelines and getting to watch, you know, Every, I watch every single level of soccer that there is in America right now. 15s, 17s, you know, a semi-professional, well, it is a professional league, but it's a, a third, I, third division league. And then obviously watching MLS and then getting to watch this past week national teams. And, and I also, I didn't even include the fact that I watched every U20 game <laughs> that mm-hmm. our, our, our midfielder Diego Luna was playing in the U20 CONCACAF championships. So add all of those in. You know, at the end of the year, you get you get close to about three hundred games. Wow. Do you watch any soccer for fun, or is that just not possible? Yes and no. Uh, my team is Man City, so I'll, I'll follow oh. them them a little bit. Um, and sometimes I'll watch some MLS games if it's on before us or, or during us, just following along with the scores and stuff. But do you follow Man City women or men's closer, or kind of both? I'm ashamed to say more of the men's oh. side. Um, as, as someone who has spent, they're also good. Yes, they're very good. But as <laughs> someone who spent most of my time in women's women's soccer, I'm ashamed to say that I don't follow the women's side of the Premier League as closely as I as I probably should. Um, but no, when when I have off time, I I watch every sport. You know, mm. my parents are like, I'll call my dad and I'm like, Did you see this? Uh, you know, Michigan basketball just just signed this player and. You know, we have a text chain with my brother where we're talking about literally everything that's going on in sports. But mm. so when I have off time, I'm off. I'm, I'm watching college football, NFL, NBA, college basketball, pretty much anything other than soccer at this point. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, um, so it seems like PR and comms, that's like a pretty intense role, right? There's always things going on. There's always like good news, bad news, crises. Um, like what? I guess I'm curious. Like, what is it like to manage bad news? Seems like you have experience <laughs> having worked in Sky Blue and, and the last days of the Royals. Yeah. But even with RSL, when you know a six-zero loss to NYCFC, like for sure, there's no positive way to spin that game. Like, what is it like to manage bad news to a fan base? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. Um, maybe maybe six months ago, I kind of sat down and, you know, in, in, in college, if you're studying in PR, the things that they quantify as crisis communication, meaning things that need extra attention that isn't just in a day-to-day, like, you know, you're going to have to do some legwork on it. In my time at, since I joined RSL, there have been close to 52 instances of what we would classify as crisis communication. Now, like you said, 6-0 loss technically classifies as crisis communication. Mm. Losing your head coach, whether they were fired or whether they left, just losing them, period, is classified. Somebody retiring. So we had Kyle Beckerman and Nick Romando retire within my time here. Um, Losing your captain. Becky Sauerbrunn got traded to Portland. So... While, yes, people think of, like, the bigger things, like the ownership transition, 
um, dealing with some of the last days of the Royals. There's also a lot of littler things that pull so much of your attention that aren't really what we would classify as crisis, right? But from a PR perspective, it's outside of the everyday, you know, normal, what you're doing for your job responsibilities. So there's been a lot of unusual activity um, that you don't necessarily see, not in a bad way, just in in the day-to-day of, of running a club that, you know, takes your attention away from, from what you actually do. But in terms of managing bad PR, um, you know, sometimes I joke and say that PR, you're really just a spin doctor. You know, my interns right now are working on the recaps for, for the Monarchs, who just got their first win in 14 games. And I told them, I was like, too. yeah, you'll learn more, though, about describing a loss than you will. Writing and doing media for the wins is easy. Getting people to care when you're not winning, that's the hard stuff, right? So it, it's, it's a lot of more extra work, but I actually, you know, you're in meetings, you're talking about things, and that's the part of the job that I like when you get to, you know, have conversations with other people and say, this is what's going on. How do we want to handle this? Even, you know, announcing Saverino as a, as a designated player, that's a big deal. How do we get media coverage? How do we cover it from an internal perspective? You know, we're working with a digital media crew to make sure that we're executing all of these big ticket items. So, you know, our website, I don't know, you probably didn't notice, but if you went onto our website on the front page the day we announced him, no, with with Saverino, but the entire top to bottom was themed for him, Mm. right? And, And there are so many things that we do that it's in the small little details to make these bad either seem good mm-hmm. or or to make the good seem even better. Yeah. Um, sorry, what I thought you were going to say, and I noticed this today and I thought it was really cool, is if you go in RSL.com right now, like Diego Luna is front and center like, yeah. celebrating his time with the national team. Like That's awesome. For sure. U-20 national team. Yeah, it's not the same thing, but, it, you know, yeah. he's, you know, he didn't make the best 11 from the CONCACAF perspective, which I think was complete. Didn't he get like the most robbery? Assists? Yes, he had that. He led the tournament in assists. He had yeah. five, and he had a goal. Um, but as a club, we if we claim to be development a de- development organization, we have to highlight top to bottom at the same level, right? So anytime one of our academy kids gets called into a national team camp, we're covering that. They get the same level of graphics. They get a press release. They get everything that. Justin Miram gets when he gets called into the Iraqi national team, right? I think that's important because, um, you know, these kids are the future, whether they're the future here at the first team, which is what we hope they they will be, or, you know, they get to get sold to another big, bigger club. And, um, and, and that's the benefit of that is even if they do get sold, they're always going to be an RSL product. So in a lot of ways, I view – kind of highlighting whether it's a U20, U17, um, those those younger moments are just as big as as senior level stuff. Yeah. I, like I remember, you know, not every fan was super stoked that when Albert Rusnak came back, uh, the club like honored him or, you know, give a little shout out before the game. But I was talking to Tyler Gibbons about it and he's like, we are trying to shift posture a bit 
and like yeah. people who have been part of this organization, like we honor and show respect for. Uh, and I think that's really cool. And it hasn't always happened. Uh, no, and I, you know, with Albert specifically, I loved working with him. Um, and I'm really glad that he's doing well in Seattle. And I understand that fans may not love that perspective. Um, but you also have to understand that there are always things that you're not privy to. There are exterior circumstances. And he made a decision that was best for him and his family. And we have to respect that. He gave us a lot of years and a lot of work um, and, and led this team, especially in, in, in 21. Um, and so when he came back, we felt it was only right that we, that we thank him for his time here. And, and we would do the same thing for any of our players. If Demir yeah. left, if Saverino left, Marcelo, anyone, if they were to come back and play a game, I mean, Carlos Saucedo is in Toronto right now. If Toronto, like, we were really excited to have him back here. And, like, we highlighted that he came from our academy. Like, we're proud of the people that have played here um, wherever they end up after they leave Salt Lake. Yeah. And, like, Snack is a really interesting story because, yeah, season before, he's captain, he, 10 goals, 10 assists. Like, that's incredible. Like, that, that was a really – didn't start off great, but it turned into a really incredible season for him. But it's also, like, sort of fun that he can be a little bit of a villain. Uh, yeah. Because I think that gets the fan base engaged, too. But what's really interesting for me is, like, we'll play the dichotomy of this situation, right? So on the Royal side, in 2019, Becky Sauerbrunn is the captain. She's having a phenomenal season. She actually scores her first goal in years. Against Portland. Against Portland, right? Header. Having one of her best performance. She wins Defender of the Year. She's on the best 11. You know, she's in mm. with the national team. She wins a World Cup medal. And at the end of the year, she makes the decision that she's going to go to Portland, that she requests a trade to Portland. And all of the fans are like, yeah, it makes sense. Like, it sucks for the Royals, but, you know, she's making a decision that's best for her and her family, right? Mm -hmm. And it's celebrated. And then you have a situation. Granted, it's a, it's a little different, right? You know, but with Albert, fans are it's, – it's this villain origin story. So yeah. it's always just so interesting for me to see how – you can have very similar situations with very different outcomes and responses. Yeah. You know. It feels like Becky had earned a little bit more good graces in ways. Uh, in her posture, maybe. Uh, and I think I think Albert is probably misunderstood in a lot yeah. of, at a lot I of think points. A lot, I think a lot of players are, right? Fans assume familiarity that isn't necessarily always there. And, you know, I do the same thing with, you know, my favorite celebrity in the world is Taylor Swift. I probably <laughs> think I know more about Taylor Swift than anyone. And, and fans who are really passionate feel like they know these players. And, and like I said, you don't always know what's going on. And, and that's kind of our job is, is to insulate players as much as possible so that fans don't see the things that they don't, they can only worry about what's on the pitch. They don't have to be concerned with, oh, well, there's, there's family issues going on and that's why they're not playing well. It's like, no, the, the players are giving everything that they can because they believe in this club. Um, and, and our job is to uplift and support them regardless of what's going on off the pitch. Um, so I think maybe a little bit on that note of what's going on off the pitch, like you have, were, have been here, like you said, four years, 
through the most volatile four years of RSL's history, like without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's there's no debating that. Yeah, like I mean, the way the last owner left and why he left, like that you can't top that. <laughs> um, but I'm curious to hear, like a new leaf has kind of been turned over, mm-hmm. right? Like there's new ownership. What what in your mind has changed about the organization? Like what are you excited about? How is the atmosphere now compared to? three or four years ago. Yeah, it's it's certainly different and it's it's palpable and you can tell. And it's it's also those intangibles intangibles that you can't quite describe, right? Like there's just an air of freeness and of kind of this weight that's been lifted. Um, and just the ability to do your job knowing that people trust you to do your job and to do it well. And that Sometimes, like if if things happen, like people might step in and and provide assistance or or input, but the for the most part, you're trusted to execute your job and to do it well. And that we've hired people that best suit the club, that want to be here in Utah, that believe in RSL and believe in in where the club is going. And when you have people like that around, that are here not for the money, not because they're trying to, you know, stepping stone to a different career or a different or a higher role. They're just here because they genuinely love the state of Utah and they love this club. You have people who are just passionate and are going to do the work without batting an eye. I feel like that's always been the organization's strength. Like, I will say, you don't have to comment on this, it seemed like (laughs) Deloitte was a really toxic person who had unrealistic expectations from people um, and did things that I think probably hurt the club's performance in the field from how he would sign the expectations of players he had. But the thing that carried Real Salt Lake was you had people here who believe in the club and worked hard regardless of how difficult things were sort of from the top down. Uh, And that's really like, I think as like a fan, like that makes me feel like, oh, this is a really special thing we have here. Yeah, for sure. I think, and I and I hope this is something that the fans feel as well. But I've always said respect and loyalty go a lot further than money and title. You know, I could get offered a job at an organization that doesn't feel like this, right? For a much higher pay and a much better title. And it wouldn't it wouldn't be worth it because there are intangibles that you don't understand, but you feel them here, right? And that's kind of what we've been trying to do with the fans for this last year and a half, really, since since the ownership transition kind of began, um, making them feel or help hoping that they feel respected mm-hmm. and that there's this sense of loyalty and, and fanship and that they have just as much as a voice as we do. That it's that it's not one person running everything, it's a collective. Um, so you were, you know, you were at Sky Blue, really volatile time. It seemed like Orlando was a pretty normal time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on the NWSL as a whole, because, you know, like I certainly don't follow it as closely as I did when the Royals were here, but it feels like it's in this really weird place of it's more established than it's ever been. Like, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like there's a constant looming threat that it could dissolve any day. And there were certainly times in the past it felt that way. And maybe that's a mystery to my point from like my perspective, but I'm just I'm curious to hear from you, like, but yeah, at the same time, 
you have like story after story of like something terrible happening with like Rory Dames or um, you know whoever. Like there's a lot, unfortunately, a lot of examples. Um, how do you feel about the state of the the NWSL right now? Yeah, I think unfortunately we probably started a domino effect of it kind of rippled across the entire league in 2020 where players finally felt confident to stand up and say, hey, this isn't okay. We deserve better and demanded demanded such. And the world kind of took notice, like, for the better, to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and change was demanded. And I think while, yes, it would have been nice if everything was kind of done in one fell swoop, you know, we are seeing kind of this trickle-down effect of, of players and the reporting system that's been instituted and autonomy that players have in this league to want to be treated like professionals. Um, and so while, yes, there have been continued reports in the last year or so, I do genuinely believe that this league is at a sustainable place mm-hmm. and that it's a league that any team or organization would want to be a part of and be proud to be a part of. Um, obviously, there's always going to be hiccups. You know, there's hiccups in the MLS and NBA and NFL. Every professional league and every every business, for, for that matter, is always going to have its issues because it's run by people and, and we unfortunately have selfish desires sometimes and, and it results in conflict and and conflict is something that you can't get rid of but I do confidently feel that the NWSL is in a great place and it's it's growing it's thriving and it's only going to continue to do so so I assume you've probably heard that Ryan Smith David Blitzer did mention they wanted to bring back a NWSL team to Utah yes I was Uh, in the room when they said that okay that's uh that's why we have you in the podcast. Yeah, that was back in that was back in January. Uh, they they were doing a press conference actually in this room. It looked a lot different then, and and it was obviously a question that was asked and uh, that I asked. Ah, yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I'm curious. Like, is there anything? I know there's a lot you can't say, but any update around that process? I think I'll start by saying this: the day that we sold the Royals was probably one of the hardest days in my professional career and in my personal life. I spent a lot of time the week leading up to its announcement and the actual announcement, you know, whether in physical tears or just emotional turmoil. um, It was the worst decision that this club has ever been forced to make. And since that happens, I think... Sorry, and were forced to make, from my understanding, like they didn't really, weren't given a choice by the league. Yeah, I mean... Because MLS, just so listeners are aware... Has has the capital to to run a team if they need to. The NWSL does not. For sure, for sure. I think Chivas USA, their dismantling uh, several years ago, had the, caused the MLS to step back and say, okay, should this ever happen again, we need to have the financial means to support a team. And so they created a fund. They were able to financially support the MLS and everything that fell under it. Um, but the NWSL did not have the financial backing to be able to do it. So it was, it was, you know, for former ownership was given a short amount of time to find a buyer. Um, and unfortunately, weren't able to find a local buyer. 
and it ended up getting tra- the ownership transition was was sent to Kansas City. Yeah, and it was like a seller move, and it's got to be now, right? Pretty much. I mean, I it was over Thanksgiving. This was during COVID, so I ended up going home the week before Thanksgiving, and I stayed because they wanted to really limit travel back and forth. And so I was in a cabin in North Carolina, mm. and I got a call from our GM that said, hey, you know, just want to make you aware this is a possibility. You know, we're still pushing. I don't really think it's going to happen. We believe that Utah is meant to be here um, and, and, and that the fan base wants it here, and we're pushing for that. And so, of course, my brain is overdrive all of Thanksgiving, and that's all I can focus on. And I end up getting back home to Florida with my family, and it comes down pretty quickly. Um, actually, I heard it first from a player. Mm. So I got a call from uh, former captain Amy Rodriguez, and she said, hey, are you coming with us? I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> she said, well, we just got a, got off a, off the phone with with the league, and, and we've been informed that the, the team has been transferred to Kansas City. Um, and at that point, there's obviously frustrations, but also there has to be some acknowledgement that you have to do what's best for the players and you have to do what's best for the future of this league. And in retrospect, like that was the right decision. Um, it was incredibly sad for the community. And the day we announced that, I mean, I probably spent two days leading up reaching out to every player, every former player, saying, you know, can, can you just help us? We want to give something back to the fans to let them know that this is not a decision that we made without thinking about you. This was a decision that, that we unfortunately had to make. But, you know, we made the claim that Utah is forever royal, and that's something that we believe to this day. From the second that we announced that sale, the priority has been thinking, how can we get them back? And, I, and I'll say... To this day, that is that is still a priority. That we we do believe that Utah is forever royal, and we we believe that there is a day that women's soccer will play here again. I was a little disappointed that when Smith and Blitzer said it's a question of when, not if, and the Royals tweeted something that it wasn't just high. <laughs> but it's it's actually funny. Even that that one little tweet. Outside of the initial announcement of, of Smith and Blitzer purchasing the organization, the highest performing tweet from that entire weekend was that one graphic quote tweet of, of that comment. So to us, that just, that just says our fans are still incredibly passionate. They love this organization and, and, and they want it back. And, and we see that, we hear that, and it's certainly something that's at the forefront of our minds every single day, um, even if they're not physically here. So assuming they come back, uh, would you see yourself kind of slotting into that same role you had before, or would you kind of continue to do what you're doing now, or just maybe TBD? I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously, time and circumstance changes a lot of things. I've learned a lot in in two years since they left. Um, I'm a very different person than I was then, but I am incredibly passionate about women's soccer, and it's something that I find myself missing all the time. So my hope would be that I get to can would get to some in some way or another continue to work in women's soccer if if we were fortunate to get a, a, another team. Um, but I don't know exactly what that would look like. And uh, but for right now, I'm really thrilled, you know, doing the things that I am doing and proud of the work. Yeah, it was so fun having 
the U.S. and Colombian national teams here. He really it was. Felt like so nostalgic. Yes, yeah. I, I spent uh, a lot of time working alongside U.S. Soccer in in the run up to that game and, and at the actual game itself, getting local media um, access to interview Ashley Hatch, who played at BYU and is kind of a BYU legend, right? Mm-hmm. And a ton of support for her. So game. much support and so much, you know, even the local media, you could tell how much they missed it. Um, the Royals were something that were people were passionate about across the state. It was fans, it was media, it was, you know, socials, right? Like our social numbers were fantastic. Like it wasn't this organization that was kind of having to be drugged through just to to keep along. Like it was a vibrant, passionate fan base. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not like some of these other organizations where at the end it's like everybody knows it's the end. Yeah. Yeah, it was them leaving was such a shock because it felt like they were so loved, had so much support. Uh, but, yeah, hopefully the future uh, holds a, a, a return. Yeah. Um, do you have any favorite stories or memories from their their time here? Um, there's a lot. I spent, a, I would say, the better part of, of my hours and my days whether it was with Royals players or thinking about Royals players. Um, I think it, it's, it's the small things that people don't know. You know, after games, my job is to pull players for media. And, you know, I really cherish the times when, I'm, when I get to walk up the tunnel with a player and we get to talk about the game. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I walked up the tunnel with Amy Rodriguez and, and, and she'd look over at me and be like, oh, I should have scored that goal. And I'm like, yeah, you probably should have. <laughs> or, or we'd, we, you know, with other players talking about um, milestones, getting to be there for Gabby Vincent in North Carolina. That was my very first away trip I ever took with the team. Mm-hmm. And it was her professional debut. And that was huge. And I loved that. And getting to see players that you don't really know, like Lola Bonta, really blossom into, you know, she's a league superstar now in Kansas yeah. City. Um, you know, and then getting to be a part of some of the players like Diana Matheson and Becky Sauerbrunn on maybe the back end of their career. It's just countless stories. I could go on and on about every player from top to bottom. Um, it, you know, it was, it was, it was special. It was awesome. Actually, I do have a, a story. I was at the draft in 2020 when it was the first time we had a first round pick. Uh, in in the club history, and we ended up picking Ziara King. Mm. And she gets up on stage, and she's giving her speech, and I'm sitting there going, wow, this is a gold mine. Yeah. <laughs> and afterwards, she she walks off the stage, and I'm, I'm standing there watching her talk to Jordan Angeli on the broadcast. And afterwards, she, she walks over, and there's a little bit of a media scrum. And a song came on, and I cannot remember who it was by, but she literally stopped media and was like, Sorry, this is one of my favorite songs. I just got to dance for a second. And it was like those moments and, and getting to be at the table when Scott Parkinson called Kate Delfava to tell her that she had been selected and like getting to hear that and, and, and being a part of kind of the lower end of, of players' dreams coming true and then being a part of the upper end, getting to welcome players back from, you know, World Cup and Olympic success. It's, it's an all-encompassing, really kind of amazing thing to be a part of. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really fun to hear. It makes me miss those days a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, 
if you were rebuilding the Royals today, like what's who's like the one player that you would put all your energy into signing and building the team around? That's such an interesting question because I think I I, I wouldn't get the best player there is, right? If I if I had all the money in the world and I could spend it on anyone I wanted, you have to get the player that's right for the organization and right for the environment. Um, so for me, I think you know somebody who's familiar with Utah. Whether that's Ashley Hatch or, you know, Michaela Coulihan, now Michaela Clough, who's in Orlando, somebody who's proud to be from Utah and is going to give absolutely everything to the crest is is someone that I would want to build a team around. I think with RSL, if you look, you know, you take Demir Krylock, who's our captain, that man would give absolutely anything for this. And then we also have a group of homegrowns who are familiar with this area. They get to have family come to games. Um, and then we pick international players who genuinely love being here, that this is, this is home for them. And so while, yes, it may be nice to sign massive name-recognizable names, like, like Alex Morgan, for example, if you have to take her away from her home to be here, you're not going to get the desired result. You know, For me, it's someone who is going to be thrilled to be in Utah and, uh, or, or at least intrigued at the possibility of it, um, that maybe one day maybe a superstar, I think. But, you know, I'm definitely a big believer in the, the in the team as a star uh, mentality that, that RSL really has, that the whole is greater than the individual. And so, um, you know, finding somebody that understands that and, and is committed to that and um, has some ties here. Yeah. It gets me thinking about, like, trying to put together a best – Utah 11 for players that have some like connections. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking how many players are either from Utah. I mean, I can't tell you how many national team players are from Colorado, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona. There's this really kind of deep wealth of talent from this part of the country, and there's not really any competition around it, right? Like when the Royals were here, that was it. And granted, under, under the old regime, there was the mentality of, Let's get the best players and let's try and win. Mm -hmm. And it didn't always work out because you had players going on national team duty and then you'd be stuck with, you know, whatever was left, which wasn't always a full team. Um, And so when it was when all the pieces worked together, which and everybody was here and everybody was healthy, it was amazing. I mean, they beat Port that that game against Portland, both here at, at home when they won. It was the first time beating Portland like that's this that team at its best but unfortunately it's not always possible right you see, you've seen RSL this year having to literally I think we were at 29 players playing on the field I don't know any other team in this league that's had to use that amount of depth mm. so to me it's more important to get people who are excited to be here people who buy into the mission um and 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 build from that rather than single individual figures yeah, it feels like a lot more holistic of a response. Like, <laughs> sure, uh, yeah. I guess it's also kind of a well political no, response no, but too. <laughs> like, that, like, I would hope that that is the mindset because it almost feels like you mentioned being a city fan. Like, the city approach to signings versus like the United approach, which is Manchester United get the biggest name. Oh man, why are they so bad? Constantly? <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's, um, and I think I think what if if the Royals were ever to come back, they could probably just do something similar to what RSL is doing, 
sign internationals who want to be here, you know, get some local talent. I, you know, unfortunately, the NWSL doesn't have a homegrown rule, but I think that that's something that would be incredible if it did. Um, you know, we've, we've got players who were on the Utah Royals Reserve, for example, in 2019 that are playing across the league now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it would be incredible to offer them the chance to, to come back home and play here if that's something that they so desire. You know, it may not be something that they wanted. I can't say, you know, yeah. but certainly uh, having the option. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a much broader question, not broader, but <laughs> maybe more specific. Um, if you had to say top three players in NW, NWSL history, who would those players be? Oh, wow. That's so hard. <laughs> I'm going to go – we're going to talk about some non-national team members because, okay. to be great. clear, the national team members are the reason why this this league exists and they're so important, but there's some also some players that, that don't get as much credit as they maybe deserve, like, like Rachel Corsi, for example. Mm-hmm. Played at Seattle, ends up coming to Utah, played at Kansas City briefly. Um, she's now back over playing in, in, in England, um, closer to her home of, of Scotland and – is she at West Ham? I believe. Or, or, is, it, or is that, no, is that Sam uh, Johnson? That's Aston. It. Aston Martin? Maybe. One of the red clubs. <laughs> Aston Villa, not Martin. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's not Aberdeen, which is like her hometown club. Yes, that is her hometown. Yeah, I will <laughs> say that. She's at, Yeah, she's at Aston Villa. Aston Villa, okay. So, But she's a player who chose to leave, came to the United States, played almost a decade in this league, and... You know, in, in, in another player similar to that, Lauren Barnes, who has played her entire career with Seattle, like mm. she is the lone figure that has been there for everything. And and there are players like that at every club that maybe aren't as, as name recognizable, um, but are so instrumental in, in the upkeep and, and the continued momentum of the NWSL. But in terms of like actual spectacular athletes, Getting to watch Sam Kerr play was phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, she is too. a next level talent. I think Jess Jess Fishlock is mm. is kind of in the same boat with with how talented she is. Um, Kim Little, who previously played in the NWSL and is actually coming back for a short term short term loan, um, fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, Ashlyn Harris has had some incredible seasons in mm. in between the pipes. Um, so. I mean, I could I could genuinely go on and on about how there are some really like stalwarts. Is how do you pronounce that? Stal- stalwarts. That's a, it's it's a weird word to say. It's a weird word, <laughs> right? But like pillars of the NWSL. Yeah. That you know, even Andy Sullivan and um, Amy Rodriguez killed it in the NWSL mm-hmm. year after year. So people that maybe you don't automatically think of when you think of women's soccer, but that are so crucial to, to this league. Yeah. Um, I mean, so you, as we've kind of discussed, have had a really unique journey in that you've worked in WCL, MLS, USL, MLS next at both the pro and non-pro levels. (laughs) Um, Do you have a favorite stadium or city? Like I assume you've been to a lot of places that most people have not ever seen. 
Yeah. I mean, there's a sentimentality to Orlando being that it's in my hometown. I've never been, and I really... It's a it's a very unique stadium. Um, amplifies sound. Really mm-hmm. cool. Getting to go to Yankee Stadium, just being there in the history. Granted, it is the new Yankee Stadium, but what it represents yeah. is is incredible. Um, I've I got the chance this year to visit the new stadium in Nashville, mm. which is by far and above one of the best stadiums I've ever been to. Um, Portland is super unique in, in the way that it's set up and in the history that they have. And being from Oregon, I still think of that as a baseball field. It's yeah, I mean, it not. definitely feels like it when you're trying to to, mm. to get around. It's it's not an easily accessible from a media standpoint, but it's super cool. That little catwalk to is visit. Awful. <laughs> oh, it's terrifying, especially for someone who's a little scared of heights. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a lot of really really cool places in this league, and then. Then there are teams like Seattle and Atlanta who play at NFL stadiums, and you stand at the base and you're looking up, and it's like, holy moly, this is this is crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I there is, and I know I might be biased here, but there is something genuinely spectacular about sitting in the press box and looking out at Rio Tinto Stadium. Um, that backdrop of the mountains, you don't get anywhere else. Um, the views, I'm. I genuinely believe that you get a good seat in this house anywhere. You know, she's old, but she's got good bones. <laughs> and and uh, that, I mean, that view is is something that I have never seen anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, it's so great that one side you get the mountains, the other side you get the sunset. Like, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I may be a little biased, but. Well, and, I mean, even just driving up today, I'm like, man, this is so obviously – Real Salt Lake Stadium, whereas mm-hmm. it used to just look like, oh, I wonder what's here. Yeah, the like, new, the new, all the new stuff is incredible. Everything Tyler Gibbons and David Dryden did into updating the stadium, like I, I literally got chills the first time I walked into this season, and and every time I come back for for a game, I feel like there's something new, and like I said, it's got good bones. It just needed updating, and and the updates make this place one of the coolest stadiums, and. Um, Hopefully, continues to be a very difficult place to play for for years to come. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, that's all I had. Is there anything else that you want uh, our listeners to know? I mean, there's a lot of things I would love <laughs> to share. <laughs> anything that can be on the record. Yeah. I mean, I would. I just. I. I think that the fan support here is so unique and so incredible, and um, they make our jobs a lot easier than than it could be. Um, and their passion and their love love for ourselves does not go unnoticed, and we're grateful for them, you know, every single day. Awesome. Meg, thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening.